Hello and welcome to episode 7 of the History of Yugoslav Football podcast, The Division Bell. At the end of the last episode, Yugoslavia had just become Lossi Chachos and wild South America with their performances at the First World Cup. Yet, while Serbia's best were on a boat and preparing to represent Yugoslavia on the grandest stage football had ever had to that date, domestic football was continuing and Croatia's best were ruling the roost. For the fifth season in a row, a Croatian side won the league and this time it would be Concordia Zagreb, a side led by Ivan Pavelic, former Olympic swimmer and son of Ante Pavelic Stari, a key figure in the setup of the kingdom. The 1930 season would be the last season in which the league would be played across the summer, with the following season starting in the autumn of that same year, as part of a dramatic expansion of the league system. It would take place in two halves, a three-group system of regional leagues feeding into a final stage of six sides. As champions, Concordia qualified automatically, but the expansion brought in new sub-associations. Group 1 covered six sides from Zagreb, Split and Ljubljana. Group 2, Belgrade, Sarajevo and Skopje. And Group 3, which covered everything else, including the new associations of Novi Sad, Sabac, Panchevo and Veliki Becerek, now known as Svenjanin. The result, however, was a league that looked awfully similar to what the league looked like before. Makfa Sabac were the only new face in the final stage and BSK would romp to the championship. Nationally, the reins of autocracy had been loosened slightly. Power was still consolidated in the hands of King Alexander and secret ballots were ended, meaning that elections would happen, but pressure on voters, along with voter suppression, was now a standard part of life. At the following election, there was massive ballot stuffing, primarily in Croatia. Furthermore, half of the newly established upper house was chosen directly by the king. Autocracy may have been gone in name, but power was still very much consolidated in the hands of the king and his advisers, and, as such, very much in the hands of those whose interests were aligned most with those of Serb nationalism and Serb exceptionalism. The government was designed in the best interests of the king, and in doing so was designed in a manner that would naturally leave it riven by dispute. It soon threw up its first victim, Milan Soufflé, a Croatian historian whose words in his book Hrvatska u Svjetu, Svjetske historie i politik, were somewhat prescient. Those who know history know that the Yugoslav idea has no dynamics. In Croatia, the Yugoslav idea is a shallow wreckage under which the Croatian national volcano boils. Only a subtle push is necessary to make it erupt. Souffle will be battered to death on his doorstep in Zagreb by the king's youth organisation, Young Yugoslavia. It will create international outcry for the protection of Croat academia, led by none other than Albert Einstein himself. Souffle's killers were never put on trial. The national team was, at least for now, not itself riven by dispute. The return of the nation side from Uruguay would see a thawing in relations between the Croatian interests and the Serb, as the side would once again be picked from the entirety of Yugoslavia. And post-World Cup, they would be unbeaten until the following June. 
the domestic championship would change once more in the 1931-32 season into something that looked a little bit more like the Champions League does nowadays. Four groups with focus given to the larger regions. Group 1 would cover two Zagreb and three Slovenian ones, with one game cancelled at the end because it would have been irrelevant, something which will be a, <laughs> a mainstay of Yugoslav football for the next decade. Group 2 would be two further Zagreb sides plus two Osijek sides and Hajduk split. Group 3 will cover Belgrade, Sarajevo and Skopje. And Group 4, a Belgrade side alongside a mix of all the other smaller Serb-based sub-associations. Two sides qualified from each group into a two-legged knockout format. Concordia would win the second and final Yugoslav title of their history, this time fired to the title by the goals of Svetislav Valjevic, a Serb military man who joined the club when stationed in Zagreb. That format too would only last a year, as the championship returned to a league format the following season, with BSK overcoming Hajduk Split, but in the background the nation was beginning to spiral out of control. The Great Depression was taking its toll on the people, and Croats and Bosnians were feeling the heat more than others. At the end of 1932, the Croatian Peasant Party issued the Zagreb points, which resulted in reprisals against Croatian politicians who were railing against their Serb hegemony, such as Vladko Macek, who had, amongst other things, demanded Croatia have the power to be able to raise its own army. Alongside this was the Velebit uprising, one of the first attacks from the Ustazi, the movement from Bajante Pavelic. That they were an unknown force only exacerbated the government's reaction. King Alexander had, meanwhile, been working extensively on foreign relations, setting up an alliance called the Little Entente. In October 1934, he would be on one of these trips to grow relations with France, relations strained by Yugoslavia and Mussolini, who was, in part, sponsoring the Ustazi. While in Marseille, Alexander would be touring on his first day of a state visit with the French foreign minister in an open-topped car. Vlado Chernozemsky, Ustazi trainer and career provocateur, jumped onto the car shouting Vive le shooting Alexander twice in the torso, once through the heart. The car's chauffeur, along with the French foreign minister, were killed also, and Chernozemsky would be shot and then beaten to near death by the crowd before dying in hospital a few years later. Ustazi leaders would be sentenced to death in absentia, but the long-term impact was to further destabilise the already shaky internal politics of Yugoslavia and, more damagingly, the wish for appeasement of Mussolini that meant the likelihood of partnership with France that could have contained Italy was in tatters. The country was now under a regency, as Alexander's son Peter II was only 11. Throughout all of this, it's worth noting that even at this early stage, there was a nasty undercurrent in domestic football. This was most obviously seen around Hajduk Split. Anecdotes abound about how Split was a risky place to go to. Gridansky players telling Illyria players to go to Split armed, and Zagreb paper reports calling Hajduk players Africans for what they perceived to be wild savagery. Just after the death of Stjepan Radic, for example, a match in split between Hajduk and Yugoslavia would be disrupted by rioting as fans attacked Yugoslavia players. Slovenian media turned on football for two reasons. 
Firstly, that Slovene clubs were very much the poorer relations of their Croat and Serb counterparts. And secondly, that football was perceived as below the moral exceptionalism that characterises Sokol roots. And that latter point of the lack of moral turpitude uh, is something that dogs football in Slovenia for the entirety of the 20th century. Corruption was rife in football also, to the extent we're at the point where the Yugoslav FA decided games should be refereed by foreign referees, so as to ensure some level of honesty in the game. Politics nationally played a large part in this, and the 1933-34 season would not take place due to this disruption. The format of the league was due to change again, but clubs couldn't agree. The league would be postponed while these ructions were sorted out, but by the time they were ready to play again, the king was dead, and the season was postponed indefinitely as a result. In a way, it actually solved a separate issue. That was the unpopular growth of workers' clubs that would have featured in the league that season. Avowedly monarchist clubs, which most in the nation were, did not like the thought of clubs from socialist backgrounds playing in their league, and a general crackdown on socialism was ongoing. 1934 would be the same year that Tito would take flight from Yugoslavia. Yes, it's taken a few episodes, but we've finally gotten round to mentioning the name of the man who will feature very prominently going forward in the nation. To further the bad vibes around the country's football, they would not attend the 1934 World Cup after losing in qualification to Romania. Next time, fascism looms large as football and Yugoslavia deal with the two greatest issues they will ever face. What to do about dictators and what to do about Croatia. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time.